It's an opportunity attack. Hello and welcome to the Grognards. I'm Dean Geiken. I'm Eric Hawley. And today we are taking an opportunity attack with Griffith Mon Morgan III, the writer, director, and narrator of a new documentary film that just came out. It's called The Secrets of Blackmore, The True History of D&D. Welcome, Griffith. Thanks. All right. Um, do you prefer Griffith, or do you want Griff, or something else? <laughs> call me Griff. Everybody calls me Griff. Okay, so Griff it is. Uh, welcome, Griff. Thanks for uh, Skyping in with us. I know that you're out there sure. in Denver, Colorado, correct? So it's a little earlier than oh, yeah. it is for us, but we want to thank you for coming on and taking this, uh, uh, letting us take an opportunity attack with you. Yeah, the internets have been ablaze about this this film since... Since I guess it was it's still in pre-release, right? Or has it been released yet? No, we got it out. Um, it's kind of it's kind of rolling out somewhat organically, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you don't know. Um, it's it was probably started later than it was started later than most of the other D and D documentaries, and somehow we managed to be the first ones out after six years of production. Six so, years. Uh, six years, yeah. Wow. So I guess we should explain. Uh, many of our listeners are grognards, so they might already be familiar with this. But Dungeons and Dragons started in basically two spots: Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which was home of Gary Gygax, and the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, the home of Dave Arneson. And common history is that they co-created the game. Both their names were on the ODD box, and when AD&D came out, Arneson had been sort of forced out of TSR. Gary took his name off the books, and so Gary's name is most commonly associated with the, with the game. But there are many people who ver- feel very strongly about this, have for many years, that Arneson does not get the respect he deserves for his contributions to the game. Um, there were lawsuits. It was, it was pretty nasty back in the day. Um, Many people have sort of tried to move past that. Some people have not been able to. Uh, but all those people are getting older, so it's it's great that filmmakers like yourself are are doing things like this to sort of get stuff yeah. on tape. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. You kind of summed it up pretty well. I always hate to jump in because uh, my real interest lies in what happens before D&D is released. Mm-hmm. And, and I know a lot of the sort of, I, well, what I always tell people is it's a lot like when your best friends get divorced and they both come to you and they tell you, well, you know, he's a jerk because he did this and yeah. she's a jerk because she right. did that. Yeah. And you're torn, you know, and, and, and people take sides and it gets ugly. I mean, it's just like that. So I can go to people in one camp and they'll tell me one thing and in the other, they'll tell me the other, you know, another thing. And I'm, you know, I'm not convinced either way. So uh, the real. Go hmm. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think the real significant thing is that Dave Arneson is about, I don't remember exactly how old he is when D&D is released, like about 25 years old. He was pretty young. And yeah. He's really young. Um, they were all young. Nerdy but... kid, you know, and he probably wasn't as emotionally developed as a lot of other kids might be. Um, and so, I mean, he, he was like the ultimate, he was the classic nerd, really smart, you know, um, a bit introverted until he got to know you. 
So he could be the kind of a jerk if you didn't know him because it was his sort of shyness defense. So, so the classic nerd, <laughs> just like the rest yeah. of us. So, at that speaking age. of classic, classic nerd. nerds, though, we want to find out about you. Yeah, your your gamer pedigree. Oh. Yeah, so to speak. where did oh. you come from? Well, you know, it's it's hard. See, that's the thing. It's like you know, where do you want to call it a beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that for me, uh, I got to turn off my fan here, but uh, for me. I mean, I have a weird background because I spent part of my childhood in Italy, and uh, so you know, I, I know all the all the uh, Twin Cities gamers, and they were using Airfix miniatures, little plastic soldiers to game, and they're about ten years older than me. Mm-hmm. So when they were doing that, I was playing with Airfix soldiers on the floor in my parents' house in Italy because that was a really common toy there. Yeah, a lot and of so those it, early you know, miniatures came from Europe, where wargaming had started hundreds of years earlier. Yeah, so I remember having Airfix knights, you know, uh, fr- uh, French medieval soldiers. They were like 172nd scale, just a little bit bigger yeah. than HO scale, and when we left Italy, my, my grandparents were in Chicago, and my dad got a research job at the University of Illinois at the Water Survey, actually, there in Champaign-Urbana. Mm-hmm. So when I was about seven years old, I lived where you guys are. Right. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of a hometown guy. So how did you yeah. get tied into the to gaming? Well, I don't know. I, it, I think uh, if you're sort of a, a nerdy kid and maybe a bit internalized, you escape into your your own games and things, and so uh, then I discovered medieval soldiers that were larger scale. And I, in the uh, '70s, when I lived in Illinois, I had medieval soldiers, and then there was a company called Exin that built out of Spain that built these Lego-like blocks that were specifically for making castles. And I had one of their small castles. But not long after that, I think around the age of 12, I, I read The Lord of the Rings. My sister had a copy sitting around, the, the bootleg copy, no less. <laughs> uh, and so when I was 12, I read that. And I just, uh, I don't know, I was just taken with that. And then on top of that, University of Illinois was also a very important computing area. And so one day, my friend Justin took me over. Actually, before Justin took me over there, Justin found a copy of Ponzerblitz, which we played together. They have love game. that yep. game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was probably about twelve or thirteen when I played Ponzerblitz, and then Justin discovered Plato, which was this computer network computer system um, run out of the University of Illinois. There were about four of them, and so I discovered this game on Plato that was called letter it was like the letters d and n and d d and d mm-hmm. and it was sort of a cross between dungeons and dragons and david mcgarry's dungeon mm-hmm. and so that was my first experience of D D. um you can look it up on youtube if you do like plato computer D D. there's a video that shows someone playing it and i thought that dungeons and dragons was a computer game oh <laughs> interesting wow and what year would that have been Oh God! I was. It would would have been about seventy five or seventy six. Right, so still pretty early. Yeah, very yeah. early on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. The first they don't really know how to date it. There's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, controversy about the dating for for when D and D began, and there was something else before that called Pettit. But I think at least within the first year that D and D was released, it was on a computer in Illinois. Yeah, well, that was those crowds crossed over. People who played D and D were people who messed with computers and. You know, there's, right. there's a lot of overlap. So what happened when you discovered that D&D was an actual pen and paper type of game? 
I mean, your your oh, your experiences with a computer, and then all of a sudden, at some point, you must have found out that wait, D and D is like game on pen and paper. <laughs> well, it was tragic because my parents, my dad, got a job here in Colorado, and I had to move to you know beautiful Boulder, Colorado, and I didn't know. Oh yeah, that was I was I was gonna kind of tie this into the Twin Cities gamers too, but. Um, oh. Let me finish this story. And so we got out here, and I guess they I heard rumors that there was a Plato terminal in Boulder, but I couldn't find it. And then the local hobby shop that was just a few blocks from my house, I went down there and, and they had they started to have more and more gaming stuff. And so I discovered Dungeons and Dragons. You know, this was in the days of the white box set and the basic set. It would have been 77, 1977. So yeah. the basic set had just come out. Mm-hmm. I remember being in that store and picking up David McGarry's boxed dungeon game, and and I had already bought D and D. So there were these these magical names: Gary Gygax. I mean, that's a magical name. Dave Arneson, David yeah. McGarry, and so it's sort of funny to now be friends with David McGarry because I, my mental image was this godlike person. That yeah, when you don't, I mean, you haven't met them. They're on a pedestal. There's still many times, many I, of them are still on pedestals, but. Now you yeah, know why. exactly. Yeah. Um, I try to knock David McGarry off his pedestal whenever I see him, though. <laughs> it's kind of a game we play. Like, now I insist that everybody misspell his name online. <laughs> with one R? Yeah. yeah. One R with yeah. just whatever letter, just, Mel Gary, You Marguerite just copied it off the box, you tell him. That's, you know, that's on the yeah, box. Yeah, so. it's just, well, I, it's a tradition that began with TSR with the first edition dungeon. So yeah, why not? Yeah. It, right? I met him at um, uh, GaryCon last uh, year, and he's an incredibly... Uh, nice guy. Yeah. At least from my experience. So uh, I was talking about the Plato community that exists now, and I lost my train of thought. But the, is the interesting thing is that Fred Funk, one of the, the Twin Cities gamers, oh, that's what I was going to tie it into. Well, Fred Funk had a, he worked as a guard at, at uh, was it CDC, Computer something, Computer Data Corporation or whatever up in Minnesota. And that was where one of the Plato mainframes was, was in Minnesota. So he somehow managed to get a terminal to Plato in his own home. And so when I talked to Jeff Barry, who's one of the Barker, Phil Barker's Empire of the Petal Throne players, he was like, oh, yeah, I've used Plato. We used to go over to Fred's house and play on his terminal. <laughs> so when you lived, you know, or, or either here or Colorado back in the day, did you know any of the people who became sort of the names that we now associate with early D&D, or were you sort of on their periphery? I was unknown. I mean, I was just some, you know, egg-headed kid off in space in Colorado. Right. Yeah, it was sort of funny and that that's... you lived in Champaign-Urbana, which is not quite the epicenter, but it is surrounded by RPG, and then you left and oh, discovered D&D in Colorado. <laughs> well, and it was just starting to boom right when I left, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I, I remember I was walking through, there's a university high school that's a block from where uh, Searle was, which mm-hmm. was the computer research lab. And I, I walked in there looking for Justin and I ran into Mike Stesick. And Justin and Mike programmed one of the early dungeon games. It was called The Pits of Barajir, based off of a reference from The Lord of the Rings. And I ran into Mike and he was sitting with some other guys around like a milk crate that was upended. And he, he sort of shyly said, do you want to play D&D with us? And I was like, huh. I, you know, I looked at what they're doing. It didn't look like anything, right? Because it's D and D. Yeah, it's just pencils, paper, and, and a table. It's yeah, and they might not have even had the supplements at that point. It might have just been like the three booklets and or a or a bootleg copy because they were having trouble meeting their their supplies 
for the company really to, Mm -hmm. you know, to get copies out there. And I was like, no, I got to go find Justin. So my first encounter with paper D and D was having somebody ask me to play and not really even understanding (laughs) that they were playing D and D. And you gave it a pass. (laughs) I was just like, no, D and D is a computer game. I'm going to go to the computer research lab and, yeah, you know. that's that's an interesting origin story. We haven't run into that one uh, yet, but that is... A sh- it's kind of, it's weird because I didn't, when I discovered D&D, the first time I looked at a set, I think I picked up maybe a basic set, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Somebody's taken the computer game and turned it into something you can play on paper, Yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. that's the way, you know, I mean, that's kind of the whole thing with once you, you know, it... it took a couple minutes for me to register oh these yeah. are reversed maybe yeah. even longer well I, I, I started with AD&D and then discovered basic and that that whole thing but had already jumped into AD&D but we don't want to spend a lot of time on that because we want to talk about your movie so what was your motivation to to put this movie together well I mean it keeps going back to the origins you know in, in uh, 1977 Dave Arneson that was the year after Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax had had their uh, falling out, and uh, uh, he published a he he published a lot of his uh, reference notes or his notes from when he was creating Blackmoor, the original fantasy campaign, mm-hmm. and he and he called it the first fantasy campaign, and he went to Judges Guild, and Judges Guild published it. Uh, it's a very it's sort of a cross between a world setting because you get the you know the Judges Guild always did two maps. You had one that had coastlines and the rest was empty mm-hmm. maybe a couple significant cities but the rest you had to fill in and then one that was the dm's map that was all filled in and then uh a lot of it is just dave arneson talking in his sort of cryptic way about what he was doing and and nobody nobody really edited now i know that it was not really an edited manuscript judges guild was very into the whole idea of just presenting a really raw format and that's yeah. why their stuff was cheap and it was also done on really um, low quality paper. Low paper. <laughs> yeah, I had yeah. some of their stuff. You know, in your movie, you have an unboxing of what was it, is it yeah. the first fantasy campaign? Yeah, um, I can't believe when I saw that and you opened that up, it had never even and, breathed well, the air of you modern. You know what world. got me was that was like, plastic. What the heck, <laughs> that plastic is so thick. You can tell when he cuts it with that razor blade. Yeah. It's that old school, like serious plastic. You know, I have the same, I mean, that was what my set looked like. Um, and when I opened it, you know, I had a really tattered, crappy edge on my game, and that was just the way it was. Um, and I, it, and, but the interesting thing about the one that's open in the show is that isn't just a first fantasy campaign copy. That is the test, plast, that's the test of the seal. You know, they went to the manufacturer or whoever, and they had them uh, test that kind of seal on the product. Wow. And so that has been, that is like the original one that they got before they printed all the others, and it had never been opened. Yeah, I sort of got goosebumps during that scene. I was, yeah, I got goosebumps, but I was also like, holy cow, I would never open that. So, you know, kudos to you for being uh, brave enough to do so. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I had a coffee spill, and I used the maps to kind of wipe it up the other day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um... Uh, so, Bob won't mind because it gives it more of a sort of antique look. With the yeah, coffee exactly. Open. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, was there an actual event that, or, or did you have? You know, I'm, not, I'm just trying to wrap my head around how you get from, hey, I like gaming, and I, you know, this is sort of interesting, and I think it needs to 
be told to I'm going to be the one to do it. Yeah. What What brought you to the point to say I'm going to make this film? This This story needs to be told. So, well, that's kind of it ties in with you know I'm reading Dave Arneson's first fantasy campaign in '77. So when Greyhawk comes out, and a lot of people are going to be offended by this, but it, the truth of the matter is, I saw the Greyhawk products by TSR, and I thought that's just a cheap copy of a really deep concept and it's just being made as product. This is just product. And I, I had all the AD and D books, but I, I thought I'm, this is, you got to understand this is 1979 when I'm saying 77 to 79 when I'm taking this perspective and I'm just a teenager, but I was like, no, D and D is now super popular. It's sort of like when your favorite band gets famous and you're like, yeah, yeah. So my friends and I ditched, AD&D, and we we all had copies of Empire of the Petal Throne. Um, I was in a group of gamers that also was ended up. Our our dungeon master was the first playtest credit in uh, uh, the fantasy trip in the labyrinth, and so we uh, we just started playing Empire of the Petal Throne with in the labyrinth pre in the labyrinth rules that our DM was making up, and then when when in the labyrinth came out, we started using the actual rules in this in the chasm flow. It was known, known as the Chasm Flow campaign. I even have the player's manual for that still. Can we back but, up? Um, a, can we back up a second? When you say the fantasy trip, are you referring to the fantasy trip game rules that Steve uh, Jackson Steve Jackson made? Yeah, my fr- I okay. was in a group that play tested for that. Okay, just just trying to get my head straight on that. I didn't know that. it, you know, but it wasn't really a play test. It's just my friends and I were playing Empire of the Petal Throne. Tracy mm-hmm. Harms, who was our DM, was making up rules to 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 play in that system and so he would just send notes to jackson and then he they started exchanging notes and jackson did what he did which was much different than what we were doing mm-hmm. um which is always what happens with games you know like you look at blackmore and then you look at D, there are huge differences in those two systems um although the concepts are always in there you know um so then uh um i don't know it I'm kind of an OD and D and 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 Empire of the Petal Throne guy. Always have been. Uh, I always wanted to be a war gamer. Couldn't find anybody to play miniature battles with me, so I would just collect them and I would read all the rules and sort of memorize <laughs> all the rules. So I, you know, back I in know the day, like I had all the, all the war game rules, but I couldn't find anybody to do it. Um, and then I w- kind of left gaming for a long time. I won't go into all the details. When I came back to it. I joined a group of Pathfinder players that were. I had, we had started a small company, internet company, that we were. We had some interesting ideas for uh, different way of approaching data structures and stuff. And uh, um, one of the guys that was involved with that, his brother, his older brother, was was uh, doing this Pathfinder game, and they'd been running it since about '79. So they just kept bumping it up to each iteration of D&D till they got to Pathfinder. So I started playing with them. And I went online and joined this group that was dedicated to original D&D. And it was uh, maybe a week later that it was Gary Gygax Day or his birthday or something. And they were having this big discussion, and I just innocently typed in, yeah, but what about Dave Arneson? Hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, that's then... when the fight started. <laughs> And I had no idea that there was all this drama, you know, because the information flow was so much different when it actually happened. I saw maybe two news articles, 
you know, I'd heard my 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 information flow was that when I walked in to buy my monster manual, I looked at the cover and I was like, that's really weird that there's only one name on there. I remember thinking that. Mm-hmm. And then later I found out that there had been a falling out. But I had also read First Fantasy Campaign and I was like, well, this guy did some really cool stuff. I'm really interested in this guy. Um, so I, this big fight broke out online when I was on that group. And uh, uh, the, the, the general consensus was that I was a lot of bad words and people were posting very bad words about me just for bringing up Dave Arneson. And I started getting these little messages in from some guy, you know, and I didn't know who he was. And, and he would just send me links to sites and he'd just say, no, no, you're right. And he'd send me a link. And so then I was like, okay, well, I'll just plonk the link in the discussion and see what happens. And so <laughs> every line, you know, every time I drop a link in there, the, the whole discussion would explode even more, more dirty words. I'm a jerk. Um, and then I, I, you know, I even got contacted by, of all people, John Peterson. He was like, who are you? What, you know, who wrote uh, playing at the world, which is probably one of the top two books people refer to when they talk about the history of gaming. Right. Yeah. And John's a great guy. Like, I, you know, like John and I will disagree on some things professionally, mm-hmm. but when I see him at Gary Khan, I'm always just pleased to see him because he's just a great guy. But, um, um, so I, I sort but then it became kind of creepy. I don't know if you've heard this story before, but I got kind of creeped out. So I'm in a giant flame war on publicly, and then secretly I've got this guy using me as a proxy for this flame war and sending me links that I'm dropping into the flame war. And uh, <clears throat> finally, I just had to ask the guy because I was getting creeped out. Who, who are you? And he said, "Oh, I used to be Dave Arneson's webmaster." Hmm. Ah, interesting. So that's how I met Kevin McCall. And so we started talking, and, and uh, Kevin knew these other guys, Havard and Raphael, who were involved in the Blackmore Forum. Havard runs it now. Raphael backed off from it, I think. Uh, but they are diehard Blackmore fans in Europe. One's in Germany, I think, Raphael, and Havard is in Norway. So now we've got this group, this cluster of four people and then Kevin revealed revealed to me that there was a uh, an attempt to make a documentary about D&D by Dave Arneson himself and that the footage still exists and oh, okay. uh, so you had a starting point when when you started your right project. so we negotiated to see the I mean we, we negotiated to look at the footage we got the footage I've watched all of the original raw footage for dragons in the basement I have it on a hard drive here I just can't show it to anybody because of agreements and all that Mm -hmm. but um we could never come it was just hard to to negotiate any sort of agreement on that on that on the rights for that and uh which is unfortunate because there's some great stuff in there i'm not familiar with that dragons in the basement is what is that an attempt at another documentary 2001 dave arneson he wanted to do a documentary about D&D. and so he hired this guy um John Kentner, I want to say. Um, sometimes I have trouble with names. I get Kenzer and Kentner confused. <laughs> it's John Kentner. He hired John Kentner to go around and interview all the luminaries in 2001. And so he went around and interviewed people. But it was sort of a, you know, there wasn't a lot of money behind it. So John was, 
mean, I, I think it's really admirable that he went out and shot all this stuff, but he was also being his own cameraman. And this is using like a, I think he was using a beta cam camera. I mean, it's a, it's a big camera. People think of cameras now as their phone, but yeah, no, back then, yeah. Back then you had to be a pretty sturdy guy to carry those cameras. And, and your cell phone was a car phone. <laughs> yeah, your cell phone was, yeah. And so, uh, all of this footage was gathered, and there are interviews in there with a lot of the original Blackmore players. There's even an interview with with uh, Bob Bledsoe Sr., which is pretty amazing. And none of um, that's in your movie, though. You didn't get to Mark include Miller any of that. And, no, it's not. It's that's not a shame. I would love to. to uh, well, we're going to still we're going to talk to you know John. Who's going to believe you when you say you're going to make a D and D movie? Yeah. yeah. Especially now, when so many have tried, and aside from us, nobody's succeeded. Okay. Right. Um, so- so back to you. So had you had prior experience in the movie industry that you sort of felt like, hey, this is something I can take on and, and have a chance of completing? Yeah, Chris and I had been making uh, some small movies. Um, and I, I, I mean, that's a really long story, but we had been making movies. We were kind of looking for another project to do. Um, none of the movies were really successful, but we were sort of getting our chops down, mm-hmm. um, making sort of independent films, which is a little bit different than like, uh, the industry guys are kind of, they just, I don't know, they approach things differently than independent films do. Mm-hmm. So you had experience. Now, what about, and you don't have to go into much detail, but I'm just curious as, you know, a, a fan of the hobby, how did the financing happen? I know I backed you on Kickstarter. Was that your primary method of financing? And then how well, did, are you going to make any money off uh, this or is this just a thing, labor of love? You know, the minute I started going, I see, I'm an, I'm just an egghead in space, and I didn't know that other films were already being made. So the more I got into it, the more, you know, then it's like, oh, well, there's another movie. Oh, and then there's other other movie. So I, uh, um, Chris and I had already started working, and, and we were just self-funding it. And it was a long shot. I just, I showed Chris all the research. I was like, like, look at this stuff. You know, I just tell him. Monday nights is kind of scotch and cigar night. We get together at a local place and, and, and I kept telling him these stories about, you know, yeah, I called this guy, David Wesley, and he's the guy that I, people say invented role playing, you know? And Chris was like, well, this is cool. Why don't we just go shoot, you know? And, and so we just self-funded and, uh, uh, went out and shot on a lark for 10 days and spent a crap load of money doing that. And then when we got back, it was like, yeah, this is really interesting. And we're going to make, we're going to have to keep working on this. At the time I was telling him like, ah, what a year and a half will be done, but it's a research documentary. So it requires a really deep study. And, and, you know, it wasn't until like the fifth year that we discovered some of the really amazing documents that we show in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't actually flash, you know, like a gold star on the screen to tell you this is the amazing thing. But there are some amazing things on uh, in the film that I think most people haven't seen. Yeah, if, if you're a fan of the hobby, you have to watch this movie. I mean, it's it gives you a whole different perspective. You know, everything up till now sort of been from the Lake Geneva perspective. And this is entirely from the Twin Cities perspective. Uh, and it doesn't bash Gary. It barely mentions Gary, honestly. Um, it yeah. just tries to get the information out there that, hey, well, look that, at what else was going on. That's the thing is that now we're getting bashed. Like, there's a section where I was trying to pick good music for Gary. Because we do talk about him, but we, oh, yeah. spend, we kind of skim it, right? And you played so ominous music. Shame on you. <laughs> What's that? You played the ominous music. I think I saw somebody criticizing you on that. 
yeah, and I and I play this music that it starts kind of ominous, ominous. But I was when I listen to the music, I'm not really looking at the movie, so I'm like, like, well, this music sounds kind of cool, so I'm going to use the cool music. Was what I was thinking because right. I like kind of dark music, you know. Like to me, that's an like I'm doing something nice for Gary because I give him the cool dark music, right? And so, and actually, when it when it when he first comes on screen as an actual, you see a photo of him it resolves into this beautiful, delicate music. And so it's sort of, you know, there's this evolution. But a lot of people are reading into it that I'm trying to slam Gary by the, using this scary music when his when his name comes on the screen. And, you know, that was one thing where, I mean, that's that's me screwing up right there as, you know, not being a super pro filmmaker that I thought, this is cool, without thinking people are going to see this and think I'm slamming Gary Gygax. So, so now that the film is out in the wild, so to speak, and it's been out for what, a uh, little more than a month, maybe. Yeah. What yeah. is? Yeah. Well, it? I know it's going to continue with the funding. Right. So I reached. Okay, I'm going to talk faster because we're probably running out of time. Oh no! I, 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 I okay. was just going to ask what had what had been. If the I re- could see you, you could give me hand cues like when you're <laughs> stupid. No, like. Three minutes, Griff, and then the thing across the neck, like, cut, yeah. cut, you're done. Well, what I was going to uh, ask was, what have been the, what have been the, re, what have been the reactions to the movie now that it's out there? I mean, you're well, kind of, I wanted to go back to you know when we started. I I was out one night and I called the guys for the uh, Great Kingdom. You know, mm-hmm. I had messaged them and I gave them my number. They called me. They were on the road, and they were on a production trip. They'd just gotten done in the Twin Cities, and were heading towards Lake Geneva, you know. And so I talked to them briefly, and um, um, and then later I I called Anthony Savini, um, Dungeons and Dragons, the documentary, and got to know Savini really well. Really nice guy. I mean, I'm still doing that. I called the guys. You know, if you're into D and D, there's so many aspects to the story. Mm-hmm. So these these movies don't really overlap because everybody's got about two hours to tell their story and it's going to be a different thing. But I would say if you don't know about him, like go out and see, uh, the, the, uh, eye of the beholder movie, the one on the D and D art, you know, mm-hmm. see our movie. Oh, it's really good. I, I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that, uh, uh, the, uh, great kingdom is back on its feet again. They're back in production. They're going to hopefully finish in, the, in a few months, you know, go see their movie too. Um, I don't, you know, I don't see any sort of competition between us, uh, because we're all indie filmmakers, and trying to get people just to pay attention to what we're doing is is really hard. And so I, but I, I talked to all those people, and we were self-funding our production. Um, we didn't go to the public because we, watching uh, social media and watching especially the the money raising part of social media, which, which. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like there was, you know, we were a couple years into it by then, and and we were seeing how people weren't as crazy about it, and there were a lot of projects that would not fulfill, so people would be angry, and we were like, well, let's just fund it ourselves. Screw Mm -hmm. that, you know. And so we spent about a hundred grand of our own money, and then we decided, well, we need another, we need about another, you know, thirty grand or whatever at the minimum to to finish the movie and so we did our kickstarter but um the hard part is just that video post-production especially on a on a research documentary is just so extensive and so detailed and so uh uh, it's just time consuming so so you kickstarted you're you're funded i mean that was successful are you ever going to recoup that money i mean what's your how do you make money off of a uh 
independent documentary on D&D. Sort of curious. Well, you know, the thing we... That's a good question. I mean, I know all these people that have made movies, documentaries, narrative films that were independents, and they spend like a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars of their own money, and and then most of them don't, you know, they don't get a distribution deal, or they don't, they just, I mean, literally, it's just like the person does their their dream movie, and then they go back to working at McDonald's or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'm 56. I kind of would like to. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to do more movies actually. But, um, so as an indie, we, we thought about going the traditional distributor type route. Mm -hmm. Um, we have connections for that, but then it, it was like, well, we're just, we're such a niche market. I think D and Ders and war gamers think that there's this, like, everybody knows what it is. And it's like, yeah, everybody knows what it is. But when it comes to doing a movie about it, it's a niche market. And when it comes to doing a movie, like if there was a movie about, Led Zeppelin and it was about the lead singer that'd be great but if it was about the roadie right (laughs) that's a good analogy yeah (laughs) and so we're doing the movie that's kind of like about what people think is the roadie of D&D which is Dave Arneson um, which you know of course he did invent the role-playing method that's used I call it the role-playing method the methodology the, the 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 structure it's the game engine it's you know it's it's a it's the unspoken rule is role-playing and uh um but most people don't realize that they don't realize that that the, even the process for creating role playing took about ten years in the Twin Cities, and it began with Taunton's Strategos from 1880. Yeah, uh, which uh, you discovered so, yeah, that in, in a know, lot so of we're detail. We're doing it all ourselves. We're selling it online right now, electronically as a as a video on demand. We're selling it cheap. I mean, you can get a pack of cigarettes for more for less than or about the same. Yeah, you I know? think you're what is it showing? Just about six dollars. For the on yeah, end, right? It's cheap. I mean, for a two-hour movie, you know. I mean, if you think about it, it's 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 sort of amazing because like Hollywood makes these big blockbuster action movies, and and that's great. I'm not knocking that. I actually don't watch them because I've seen so many of them; they all seem the same. But you go to the theater and you're spending, I don't know what tickets are these days, like a lot more than six dollars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you got two people. You're spending twenty five bucks on tickets, then you go get popcorn and drinks, and you're spending yeah, twenty five bucks. Yeah, it's a fifty dollar experience. Yeah, yeah. People unload fifty bucks just on a ninety minute movie, so you can get a six for for six bucks. You can get a two hour movie that's actually about D and I don't know. So what else? What else can I do to convince yeah. you that you want to see this? Yeah. So know? let's talk about the content, so that maybe people will go see it. So, you know. We've already talked about, you know, overall, it's looking at the Twin Cities. It's looking at Arneson. Um, one of the things, you know, there's a lot of controversy that, that came about. You, you ha- sort of had to expect that there it would stir up that hornet's nest again, didn't you? Well, we were, you know, there was, it's unfortunate, or it's fortunate, actually, because a lot of the twin, uh, a lot of the uh, Lake Geneva crowd didn't want to talk to us. And we were kind of, I think, you know, the way that the, it's, it's a very tight knit group within the gaming community and there are different groups in it. But if, if you're something that they don't like, they just won't even talk about you. It's not an issue of, you know, so we kind of got sort of, you know, no, nobody was, was really talking about our project being in, in, in the making because nobody wanted to see it happen. And part of why they, they didn't want that is they really thought, I think they thought we were going to do some sort of hatchet job like Geraldo, 
on Gary Gygax. Yeah, and, yeah. And well, I got to tell you, I, I found it to be a pretty sort of neutral look. There's two parts that I think probably stirred the stirred the hornets, so to speak. The title, which is a true history of Dungeons and Dragons, I could see you know, that. and that came about because it was like, what can we? Because that's the subtext of the title. The real mm-hmm. title is just Secrets of Blackmore. Blackmore. Yeah. Right. And, but and, from and a marketing that, perspective, maybe that's the way to go when you title a movie. You know, yeah, we were just like, you know, nobody's going to know about this movie, so let's just get in their face and be arrogant about it. Then they're going to want, you know, they're going to see that, and it's going to be like, hmm, and then they'll watch it, and then they'll sort of realize, well, actually, the true history of D&D is really complicated, and these yeah. guys are showing us one side of it, but you could look at it from another angle, but you definitely are going to get informed. You don't have to agree with it. But there's a lot of, inf- you know, we show, we, we were, I don't know, you see the first character sheet on there yeah. in the movie. Now if, the, even if it's just for the documents. The you know, other part things. that sort of struck in my craw, that really grainy footage of Arneson giving his talk. What, any idea what year that's from? That was probably about 2000, I want to say 2001. Okay, maybe. so that was pretty late. So so for those who haven't seen the movie, and I'm paraphrasing, and forgive me if I butcher it, but there's a really grainy footage of Arneson giving a talk. It looks like he's in a convention room because they all look the same. Sitting at a panel. Yeah, sitting at a panel, and he says, role-playing games were invented, I think it was 1971 or so. Um, yeah. Don't ask me how I know that because I'm the one who invented them, and I have documentation to back up my claims. And yep. it's not only the words he says, but the way he says it that uh, – don't get me wrong. I love Arneson. I love Gygax. I think all those guys deserve a ton all more recognition than they get. The but time. that's also just as wrong as many people's views. Yeah. Were, now, okay. Here's, yeah. here's the deal. And now, now I'm not angry at you. Yeah. But I have so much rage against the gaming community. Okay. Because I'm so sick of people talking Arneson down. Like Arneson is my hero. Mm-hmm. So when I, for years, I've, you know, now that I've discovered this for the last six, seven years, I go online and it seems like it's really okay to say that God, Dave Arneson was lazy. He was stupid. He couldn't type. He, you name it, you do, you know, all this stuff. And people are just throwing out, like if, if you said that about somebody in public that was alive, that you knew you'd be in a court for libel, Yeah, you know, and, and. Uh, and there are particular people who owe their entire careers to what Dave Arneson invented. And they've been running around talking crap about Arneson forever. Hmm. And I'm just think, I just think that is like incredibly offensive and ignorant and pathetic. So, so having said that, all I've seen, you know, all, everybody I talk to, all they've seen since 1976 is that narrative. And it's okay to say that. And the reason it's okay to say that is because Gary Gygax and his cadre of friends and it wasn't just Gary. It was like the Blooms and everybody else. They turned they turned Arneson into the bad guy, and they made the whole narrative about D and D about them being the good guys and Arneson being the bad guys. And what that and the result of that process is that the people who helped create Dungeons and Dragons and role playing got cut right out of the whole narrative. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so nobody knows about Wesley. Why don't we know about Wesley? Yeah, and because and that is a name that. that of all the people that I did not know a ton about, I mean, I knew about Arneson and Gygax. You covered Wesley in detail, and to me, that guy deserves a ton more credit. And I tell you what, next GaryCon, I'm signing up for one of his games because I, I at least want to shake his hand. Oh, um, my God. We Last GaryCon, he didn't have—or the one before that, his his uh, Brownstein games were 
half empty. Yeah. Really? No. And it's, yeah. I don't, after your film, I doubt that'll be the case this time. Yeah, I, for those who yeah, don't know, Wesley, Wesley. In. I got to play last time, or I played twice now. Um, yeah. And that's another game that, you know, percolated through the gamer culture, because I played in a Brownstein in Boulder many years ago, and I didn't know it was a Brownstein. It was just there was, this guy was going to run this live-action game, and so there was this group that would do that. Yeah. But really all they were doing was take somebody had seen Wesley run his game and they were running the exact same game. Yeah, for those who don't know, just setting. really quickly, because some of our listeners might not, uh, Totten came out with Stratego's in 1880, military war game, simulation style. Wesley converted that to Stratego's N, which sort of added a more active referee with sort of a fog of war mechanic um, and a decision maker as opposed to just... Uh, just applying the rules as they were written because the rules became a little more flexible when you added those other components. And, yeah. and then he came out with Bronstein or Bronstein or however you say it, <laughs> um, which was really... Bronstein, uh, Bron- yes. Yeah. Bronstein. The first, what I would call the first dungeon master, people played individual townsfolk with, in different positions, had individual goals that they tried yeah. to achieve, and they interacted with him directly telling him what they would do he found, thought the game was a failure. His players loved it, and that was sort of proto D anD D. But definitely, oh, I think the first. Okay, don't even begin with the proto word. Okay, like proto words are anathema to me. When I was studying linguistics, you know, the linguists are they they have problems deciding what is what, right? Yeah. So they came up with this idea of like, well, if it's not a language, then we'll just call it a proto language. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, and then I, I remember my my uh, anthropology teacher talking about this, and 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 uh, or she was an archaeology teacher, but and she was like, you know, no, she was like, I can't find a definition for proto language. Everybody's running around writing papers and using the term, and they go to convention, you know, their their conferences, and they have meetings where we're going to talk about proto languages, but nobody has bothered to write a definition. And well, so, let me clarify what I, I mean by it. I mean that I think that is where the Dungeon Master started. That was, to me, the first Dungeon Master. I'm not sure the players became what we would recognize as role-playing game players at that point, but they were definitely on the path. But I think the yeah. role he played... Well, I think was, that what you're talking about... I'm just interrupting everything yeah, you're go, saying. Go right ahead. Go for it. From a research perspective, the big problem is defining what a role-playing game is. And so when you use, you know, so, so, and, and proto role playing, proto RPG, I'm not sure who coined that, that term, but, you know, until you can come up with a definition for RPG, I don't even want to hear about proto RPG because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody can tell me what an RPG is. I mean, do you know, can you well, define I, it? I, I, hey, I will answer any question you ask me. It might not be the right answer, but I have an answer for everything. To me, to me, Eric always has an answer. To me, an RPG, one, you have that Dungeon Master component where somebody runs the game making rulings. Uh, it's a co-creation of reality. They generate all the content. The players, except for the players, characters, they, they generate the content relating to their characters. And then the players take the viewpoint of their characters and develop those characters over time in whatever manner the rule systems dictates. It could be skill advancement. It could be item collection. It could even just be some, some narrative-based story that, that they accumulate this experience. Uh, but those are the components that I consider crucial for role-playing. Everything else is negotiable. Okay. 
Yeah. So. Right. Well, you know, it just depends on because I know Arneson was running these uh, like huge Napoleonic campaigns, and and as far as I'm concerned, they're a kind of role playing. They game are. They're, they're, a, they're a step. Yeah, they were missing the individual character. Yeah, we don't have the time to argue this. Because <laughs> I argue with this. I've argued this for years yeah. now. Yeah. But no, I think that there's a, you know, everybody decides what they think the dividing line of the thing is. I call yeah. it the thing because I don't know what else to call it. Yeah. Oh. And, um, and the I other... think the only person who truly understood and can write intelligently about uh, what role playing is, is Rob Koontz. And he was right there when it was, when D&D was being created. You know, he was in the room when. When, when Arneson demoed the game. And, and he straddled both groups, right? He was one of the individuals that sort of had connections with both groups back in the day. Is that correct? Well, he got close to both groups, you know. Um, and his brother Terry is actually the one who created the, the Beholder. I mean, the most epic image of Dungeons & Dragons was actually created by Rob's brother. Yeah. You know. Um, and something that uh, exists, exists still in their uh, iconic imagery. Yeah. But... Um, no, anyway, I mean, if you you know, where do you where's your cutoff line? I think that it's easy to look at it and and be. I I I heard all the I've heard all the arguments that you were making about what an RPG is, and and if we had more time, I would I would very systematically argue against you. <laughs> okay, well, maybe we could have a lively but debate over a couple beers. Um, because I think that your terminate you 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 very you very loosely skim, skim over the terminology of of what is being done. So, like, when I see Brownstein, as far as I'm concerned, Brownstein is actually more of an RPG than D&D. Okay. Or than more. Because in Brownstein, you don't even need the referee for part of the game. Like, the referee... Yeah, you interact with other players directly. Yeah. Yeah, you're just like, this is who you are, this is what you want to do, this is what you want to get, and he steps out of the way. And the way Wesley does it, he's kind of... he's. I don't think he's running it the way he ran it originally. He's kind of turned it into a little bit of a board game now. Mm-hmm. And so, and this, and this is the Twin Cities play style, is that they just knew that they had the freedom to do whatever, you know. The, the uh, examples of, like, I don't know, uh, the, the one that I have, have in an interview is, is they're playing Napoleonics, and, and the player comes up to the river, and, it's, and, the, and the river's too deep to cross, and so he looks around and he says, well, can my men use that barn to make a bridge across the river? Like, that's not a war game. You know, if you've played war games. Yeah, it's um, usually, if it's right. in the rules, you can do it. If it's not in the rules, you're not doing it. And you're pushing units around. Like, it's, it's yeah. glorified chess with yeah. randomization for, like, a gambling feeling. And, yeah, and so when the minute you, you know, and that's that's the thing that happens even in D&D. There are portions of the game where aren't you're not really role-playing, like, the exchange, you step in and out of, you do a lot of switching, you know, you're, you're, you're stepping in and out of role playing as you're playing. Yeah. And I brought that up to a friend when I, we were talking about, you know, playing in character. And I said, even when you're playing, a you know, World War II, clearly a miniatures game, somebody busts out the German accent, you know, when they're playing the Germans. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so where, where is that line? The, the other one that's interesting that people might not know about is McGarry, uh, who made the dungeon board game. That's sort of an interesting dynamic. You have these four characters. You pick one of them to play. People like to gravitate towards the same character over yeah. the multiple well, games. That's an imaginary thing. I mean, even when you played Monopoly as a kid, you know, ah, I have yeah. Boardwalk. 
Yeah, or I'm you know? the horse or the shoe or whatever. Yeah, I yeah, or even that. I'm the I'm the object. Yes. Know? And and when you tell oh. those stories, if you're telling the story about the game, you don't differentiate. Oh, in game seven, when I was the the hero, I did this. You're just, hey, I did this in dungeon, and and it all sort of the narrative all sort of runs together. So it's definitely a continuum. I I don't mean to apply you there know, was a clear break. Right, and one of the interesting things is that you know the kind of research that's been done so far on on RPGs anyway. A lot of it revolves around the idea of like I'm going to hold up this object and I'm going to hold up this object, and you tell me if they look alike. If we agree they look alike, then we're going to say they're the same thing, mm-hmm. which is a lot like what you saw with dinosaurs. We're going to hold up a lizard, we're going to hold up a dinosaur skeleton, we're going to say if these are, look like the same thing, then we're going to decide that dinosaurs are lizards. Okay. I mean, that's the basis of, of failed <laughs> yes, science. I'm, I'm having flashbacks to my undergraduate philosophy classes, and we're talking about the essences. What is the essence of an RPG? Because anything that contains that essence is an RPG. You know, that's from right. Plato. So we haven't we haven't advanced much beyond that. But and and but, that process is still ongoing. Science, the story of dinosaurs. Now we, there was a guy at the time that was saying they're birds, and everybody was like, they don't look like birds. They're not birds. You yeah. know, and and now they um, all say it's right. Now and so with 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 our exploration into D&D as far as how the RPG aspect evolves, now we've discovered that actually uh David McGarry's dungeon game uh there's sort of this 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 it's almost like like if you look at genetics, you know, um you have bottlenecks in genetics where where mm-hmm. uh, only one species or one one phenotype or trait will be be uh keep going and then and then but then you also have infusions genetic infusions from other areas and so if you look at D&D the one of the big things that you have to understand is uh well people were only looking for chainmail references in the rules originally because they were told by Gary Gygax in articles in the dragon that that was the original source for the game yeah and so you look at it and like sure enough you see chainmail well the reason chainmail is there is because Gygax converted Arneson's systems to something that looks more like chainmail and was using chainmail. And so the infusion for chainmail, Arneson used one chart at the beginning of the Black War. Yeah, I think you mentioned that in the movie at some point, right? I believe. No, we don't, I don't talk about systems because the systems are so subordinate to the actual okay. role-playing game engine. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it's important to understand that nobody's looked at McGarry's dungeon, okay? And from the very beginning when we started the film, I was like, well, McGarry's Dungeon, you roll a six-sider on a one or a two, you get through the secret door. <laughs> Which is the exact mm-hmm. chance in AD&D. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so, and so, right, I, okay, are you seeing it? Yeah. So uh, we, uh, Dan Boggs, who does a lot of research with us, Dan's great, um, he's found some amazing stuff. He found a a pre-D&D, probably pre-Gary version of the rules. It's like a six-page set, I think, of rules that were done by John Snyder, who's the guy who actually invented the rules for Colored Dragons and isn't credited in D&D, but is credited in the first fantasy campaign. Um, he, he, he had his own campaign at some point that he started. But um, So Dan got a hold of, a while back, uh, McGarry had created a dungeon copy. He self-published, basically, by making one copy of his game. And so he duplicated his game and gave it to his friend Carl's sister, Sandy. And so Sandy, when she was maybe 14 or so, got her like the very first dungeon game, and, is, and she's been playing it since then. But she has the original rules, which were lost. Yeah. 
These are and these are handwritten rules by McGarry. And so uh Dan Boggs started going through that and he started, you know, he he started just seeing all these I mean, he's very he's different than I am. I'm kind of a theoretical guy. Dan is a real number cruncher. Mm-hmm. And so he's gone through and he's like, Yeah, it's very clear that uh McGarry's dungeon is actually one of the sources for D and D. And and it's it seems pretty obvious that his his game is being lifted and put into D and D, but he's not even being credited or paid for it. Yeah, you know, yeah, which is sort of that's hmm? the great thing about your movie is you're drawing attention to these names that most people have never heard of before, and these guys deserve a ton of recognition. Yeah, for what they well, do. I think a lot of people know who McGarry is, although yeah, because I think. Uh, is it Hasbro or Wizards of the Coast that publishes Dungeon now? Uh, well, um, they're the same thing. So. Yeah, they're owned by the same. They're all one <laughs> Hasbro big company. Owns Wizards. Yeah. Well, it's sort of where do you stack it in the pyramid? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's under the Hasbro label. Yeah, and you know that's just part of how business works. Like I think a lot of people are really enraged. Like even the whole, you know, Gary lost. They stole his company, and it's like, well, actually, that's how business works. Is um, at some point somebody who has a really great idea um their their market they're going to hit market saturation they're not going to sell as much product mm-hmm. they're not going to have something new to sell the value of their company is going to go down and a bigger company is going to come along and say let's snap that up and add it to our collection yeah. and put it on shelf somewhere my short version for that is in the beginning tsr was run by gamers who knew very little about business and in the end tsr was run by businessmen who ver- knew very little about gaming and neither well, of those work. You know, it's interesting, too, because I think that, you know, people are... Uh, I don't want to slag on Gary, but I think Gary got convinced by the Blooms that they were, like, the hottest thing around and that he needed to trust them. But if you look at the history of these gamers, uh, you look at the Twin Cities gamers who leave, McGarry had a degree in uh, uh, in economics, and he was telling Gary, you know, you got to pay attention to these things. I'm your treasurer. We need to get somebody else in here that can help. You know, I'm the long haired weirdo. I can't go to the bank and get the cash. Maybe (laughs) we need somebody else on the board that's older and has more connections that can go to a bank and say, you know, we need to get a loan for this company. They're doing well, but they need more money so that they can make more product and sell more product. And uh, if you look at the history of TSR, uh, it tanks out in like ten years. Yeah, That's it's cool. it's the heyday does not last nearly as long as I thought it did. By the time I was graduating high school, they were already on the way down. Like in '85, it it was already a sinking ship, and yeah. they generated a ton of content after that in an attempt to keep it afloat. Well, and it was uh, you know, and so you know, they're they're a great success and they're also a great failure. You know, they're. There's a certain point where you don't have the skill sets to run that kind of company. Like I think the guy that ran Apple, I always forget his name. He Steve left. Steve Jobs. Yeah, he left because he knew he didn't have the skill set to run that company yeah. as a giant corporation. But then ironically, the company started to fail because they didn't have his vision. So they brought him back as the vision guy. And that's when it really took right. off. You know, you got so, to have your dreamer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and it takes both. And unfortunately, you know, that didn't happen for D and D. But luckily, we are where we are now, which is the, the huge popularity of the of the hobby. It's just crazy. 
Exactly. But if you look at what the Twin Cities gamers did, you know, uh, Dave Arneson, well, I mean, Dave Arneson didn't do any, any better than Gary. He tried to start his company with a huge infusion of cash from TSR mm-hmm. and screwed up and his company tanked out and, uh, and it was his own fault. And so, you know, people are refusing to say like, well, maybe it was somebody's fault that TSR failed. Nobody wants to put it on Gary's feet. And it's like, well, you know, he did a lot of really great things, but he also did a lot of things yeah. that weren't great. You, you know, know, it's not an issue. And, you know, you just got to step back and like, just, okay, part A is good. Part B is bad. And because I'm known for tangents on this podcast, not that this has anything to do with your movie, but the guy I have mad props for who I have only met in passing is Steve Jackson. Cause that guy has oh. made it work oh, yes. for 40 years. Well, you know, Steve Jackson, you got a Mark Miller with, with, uh, yeah, I see Mark, Mark every once in a while. He's, yep. He see him at um, conventions. He's local to us. Oh yeah. Yeah. Miller was right up the street. Yeah. That's I went right. to, I went to college at, in Bloomington normal. So I, I gamed with his crowd. That's, that's right. my pedigree. Right. Very cool. Um, yeah, countless others, you know, Lou Zaki. Lou's been there all, I mean, he's sort of an unspoken hero and people don't really talk about game science dice but he was also making games we've actually talked about him a lot on the podcast and he's look i think he's looking to get out of the business he's trying to sell sell off he's trying to sell he's getting up there and you know so everybody wants to retire at some point but we would Mm -hmm. love to to try to get an interview with him as well because that guy's just a a font of dice knowledge yeah i went to a panel uh that he led at gary con and it was a fascinating panel i did not i had no idea that there was so much thought behind I mean, random number generating. Random number generating on dice. It's amazing. His story is truly amazing. Yeah. Um. Anyway, just to get back on track, um, mm-hmm. I guess I'm supposed to be talking about the movie, but yeah. I really like the history of the early stuff. Yeah. Um, I mm-hmm. think it's really fascinating. A lot of people have complained that I spend too much time. Um. You know, our movie is is spending too much time on on uh, the Napoleonics, but. If you look at the trajectory of the game, they spent a lot of time on Napoleonics. And yeah. I think that people miss... Hmm? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's we, we refer to wargaming a lot. That's where they all came from. And if you want to understand where somebody ended up, you have to look at where they started. You know, it's funny, too, because you go to conventions and, and everybody's into their RPGs. I mean, they're, and there are different... Uh, there's sort of uh, different waves of gamers. You know, there's the sort of ground zero gamers, which are the gamers that created D&D, like that era. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they're all war gamers. And so there's, there's sort of the ground zero pot people kind of mix into the, the first wave, the kids that discover uh, D&D, the white box, or the brown box, if you were lucky enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in during that era, until AD&D comes out and becomes like a kind of the beanie babies of its time period. Uh, the, the gamers of that period, not only did we play RPGs, but we also played war games. Yeah. And, and when I, and when I, and I'm not being critical of these kids, I just see a difference of how the product is being sold. And, the, and the, so everything now has to be completely Canon and it's very hermetically sealed. Whereas the original systems were very open. You kind of got this, it was like, I, I just bought a hammer and a saw and some wood, and, and I'm going to build the world. you just built what you built, yeah. Yeah. That, I, so, uh, in that generation, we were relying, like, I don't know, I probably was 14 when I read Herodotus. I wanted to read something about the Middle Ages because I was playing D&D and wanted to do some medieval thing. 
but I found a copy of Herodotus and read this crazy thing without really understanding the content. Like it was like, well, this is old, <laughs> you know, like that's, I don't know when this is, this is like, you know, weird, but interesting. Um, and so I was using Herodotus as a reference for my games, you know, whereas now kids are buying just the, the reference book and, and kids will rattle off all the, I mean, it's, it's sort of surprising to me that they're spending so much time memorizing the canon and not looking at history. I kind of, that's an interesting point. Uh, D and D for me was kind of a spark plug for me getting into deeper into history and reading and stuff like that. And I wonder if that is indeed the same with the new generation where so much stuff is just being done within the world of D&D and not looking back at, you know, some of the inspiration for the stories in the early games. Well, it's, and that's interesting to me because when I, you know, I don't know, it's, 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 it's a different culture, different time period, but I think that the, it's just it, the the canon is so tight now that you can't interject all these other things. When I run my games, you know, uh, having a lot of kind of archaeology knowledge, um, I can talk about the fact that my city sits on a tell, and that a tell is this pile of dirt that has accumulated over centuries and, and millennia of having a city built in the same location where things collapse and things are built on it. <laughs> and you lived in so, Italy, so... <laughs> yeah. You, right. You've done that. Well, you know, Verona is amazing because you walk down the streets now and they, they've dug up... The, the town center has these areas where they've dug it, dug underneath the street, and there are all these mosaics and pieces of pillars, and they're about, you know, eight feet below the level of the street because yeah. the, the, you know, the the annual flooding of the river, the, the Adige there just brought in dirt and built up, built up the ground there. And so you, you, it's, you know, it's, it's like peeling an onion. You can just go down into, into history or like a tree rings. But, um, yeah, in a game I talk about, you know, you get to this part of the dungeon and, and the architecture of the dungeon itself is different. It looks, it's bigger rocks. It looks like Roman architecture. You're getting deeper. You're finding frescoes of strange things. These people that, that look sort of human, but they're different, and they have really colorful clothes. And and what you, another thing you notice is that maybe the the women seem to be the leaders, and the men are the subordinate ones in this part of the dungeon, um, in the artwork, and and you know, and so and you bring in real history and kind of change it around, you know, like that, like that. What I'm describing there is like the Etruscans, you know. Mm-hmm. The, 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 and didn't the women the, walk the, around with art. with their uh, chests, their breasts hanging out? Was that the Etruscans that did that? They had the weird. Weird clothing, I think. Maybe I'm well, thinking of somebody else. More important Maybe that, that ones. when you look at the Etruscan tombs, the women are, are drawn as equals to the men in, in size and level within the frame. And so they had a very um, egalitarian society as yeah. far as gender is concerned. You um, know, one of the things sort of that bears upon that, I my view is that back in the day, D&D brought people together. If you look at people's Venn diagrams for interests, pre-internet, mm-hmm. the people who are okay. interested in D&D were also tended to be interested in computers, interested in history, you know, interested in the arts and literature. And yeah. now if you are interested in any of those things, there's a community for you online. You don't need that overlapping Venn diagram anymore. You can just focus on that one thing. You can be insulated yeah. in your 
interests. And and part of the appeal of early D&D was that sense of wonder and novelty when you came across stuff that you weren't familiar with. Mm -hmm. If you had no idea what a minotaur was, it scared the hell out of you when it got described, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. But now everybody knows what a minotaur is because you open page 272 and there it is and there's a picture and everybody knows the stats. And Well, that's a difference in the way that games like Arneson, when he ran his first games, he didn't even let the players roll the dice. <laughs> Which would be there would oh, be a revolt Greg, <laughs> at every table in the world. Yeah. Greg Svensson told, I think as Greg Svensson talked about how he only ever saw his character sheet maybe once or twice. Everything else was just you just tell me what you want to do. Which is yourself. Which is funny because, you know, if that's where it started, D&D quickly got into a more mechanical base. You had a character sheet, you had dice, you had statistics. But now, I mean, I don't know if you keep up on the current, but the critical role, the juggernaut that is critical role. I, yeah. I, I DM a lot at conventions and for Adventures League, and you definitely have a schism in the player base where some people almost want to go back to the Arneson method. Just, I want to tell you what my yes. character is doing. I want to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And you just tell yeah. me what happens. Yeah. I just blogged about a recent game. I actually wrote a, wrote a big thing up on the Blackmore blog, uh, uh, Havard's Blackmore blog uh, forum. And uh, I, I put some of the lore in there that I had. And I ran a game session. We never actually had a combat. It was all lore and exploration. And you're in this place, and it's terrifying. My players, you know, they get down to the fourth level and it's like waist-deep fog. And they're like, oh, great. We got a map to this treasure and we got to go through this, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's when, you know, the, the proverbial uh, feces hits the fan, too. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, but back to the idea of the first-gen players is they were, they were war gamers. So they were very familiar with the idea of, like, the chess game type war game. And then comes this weird game where it's all in your head and you're not using miniatures. We never used miniatures when I was a kid. Um, there were a lot of things like, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons original edition has a caller, which is the person that yeah. represents the party. Yeah. We never played that way. We just, you know, yelled out what we were doing. Well, we, know, were, we were a bunch of young teenage boys, so we had a caller. We needed it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There had to be a leader of the party, so to speak. I mean, there were a lot of things, and the original rules were very vague, you know, so everybody evolved their own play methods, like little tiny parts of the game of how they did it, um, which was really interesting. Uh, I remember even as a kid wondering why the stats had no impact on the game, really, in the original version, and they they don't have that impact. They don't don't have uh, an impact on die rolls as a secondary modifier that you get from the statistic as a bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, until Greyhawk, which is 75. But now that I've started playing OD&D, I realize that the original design is actually much more elegant and more streamlined. And that that's, I mean, I, I, I wish more people, you can download the original rules for like 10 bucks off the oh, internet. I, I have a I wish, set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, you have an actual set. Yeah, I picked one up. I didn't own it back in the day, but I picked one up afterwards because I was like, I need to have a piece of this, so... I you know, I, you can play those rules and wear those books out because it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful game the way that – I mean, I, and, and I slam Gary sometimes, but I also just praise him because he really created something magnificent in those three little booklets. If you think about how small those rules are compared to what you have now um, and, and just how expansive the experience is, 
Gary did something fantastic with that. Yeah. Then, then you got sort of market pressures. People wanted more of this and more of that. Uh, you know, once you go past like three character classes, um, and you start getting these weird things where, I don't know, it's just, well, it's, it's starting to go down the path of min max. Our, our other co-host, no min maxing. Our other co-host, who's not here, um, he has a line that he, he stated in the past, which is TSR was a publishing company, and publishing companies make money from publishing. So, right, <laughs> you know, you have to continue to produce if you want to stay in business. And not all progress is good. No. Well, that's you know that's the business model you see in everything. I mean. Uh, I don't know the card games, you know, where you got to buy more cards. Yeah, magic collector it, card games. I mean, that's kind of like mar- you know marbles in the schoolyard. You know, you try to win somebody else's marbles. You know, um, and that's yeah. All, every every system does that. But um, after I've been playing since '77, so I got what 40 years here or something like that of of D and D in me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've come. I played with a Pathfinder group and. Um, I thought it was interesting and then I went, so I decided to just make my own game because I understood what the mechanic was. So I did a D20 mechanic without rules where we just kind of made it up as we went. And I started the campaign just with a blank piece of butcher paper. And this was before I began the movie. And, and so it was sort of fascinating to realize that, oh, Dave Arneson was using a blank piece of butcher paper and drawing on it to create his setting. And I did the same thing in this sort of, uh, I don't know, an attempt at, at, at getting back to the roots of how the game was played. Um, and so that was, and that was really interesting too. Actually, this is kind of leading into a digression, but when I played with my group and I made them play without rules, they freaked out. Okay. Uh-huh. So, because they don't, you know, like I tried to have one guy be a magic user. I was like, just tell me what you want to do. He never tried to cast a spell the whole game session, you know. <laughs> Did he know he was a magic uh, user? <laughs> some people need structure, I told suppose. Him he had the power to use magic, and he just needed to tell me what he wanted to do. And and for some reason, like, they ran into a pack of dogs that shot, like, flashlights out of their eyes, but then they could use those to burn things. It was kind of like, like, uh, like when you use a magnifying glass with the mm-hmm. sun, you know. And then, and I was like convinced they were going to do something to get these dogs, you know, like this is your chance to cast some sort of spell. Nope, nothing. But, um, so if you play a game and you just have a simple mechanic for resolving, uh, conflict of any kind and, and, and your players know how to role play, even if they know how to play a role playing game and they've played D and D and they played Pathfinder, they won't feel comfortable within that. And, and, so when I look at what Dave Arneson did with his group, where they showed up and he was like, this is what's going on. There are no rules. You're going to be a warrior. You're going to be a, you know, Pete Gaylord says, I want to be a wizard. Okay. Um, and you make it up as you go. It, it's just a real testament to the level of sophistication that Dave Arneson's playing group had. Oh, that these yeah, guys yeah. could actually play in that loose format. And then, and, and they loved it. You You're know? Uh... And then they, they pushed Dave to, come up with things to, to have just enough rules to, to continue, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it really comes through in the movie that these guys as players were so essential to the creation of the game. 
and I think people, you know, there's the glory, you get the glorification of Gary, you get the sort of the deification, the, the, the villainization of Dave, but nobody talks about the players, you know, even in, in, in Lake Geneva, um, there were a lot of players there that, that don't really get the credit they deserve for just being able to hang in there and play this game that at the time doesn't even exist except for this basic framework of role playing. Mm-hmm. You know? And, uh, yeah. So whatever you want to make of that, but if you, it, it's interesting, you know? So, uh, before we wrap up here, how are you going to measure the success of the movie? What, I mean, I know your intent is to get that, that, history of the unknown players and and... count my ferraris (laughs) well that would be wonderful yes yeah Um, but i might probably be able to get like a ferrari tire iron (laughs) so or maybe a pin (laughs) um we're gonna the way we'll work the success with this is that uh if it pays for itself it would be the big start Mm -hmm. um but i think you want more than that don't you i mean not not in a physical sense you want to get that history out there and make it known to the uh, general, not necessarily the general, but in a financial way. No, I no. don't know. I mean, if people are going to find it. People are not going to find it. You can't beat people into, you know, seeing your, your movie. Um, I think it's just been a real pleasure to be able to make a movie. So, mm-hmm. I, and I think that that's the, like, now that the movie's effectively done, I have a lot of kind of menial work to do to kind of, to follow up on the Kickstarter fulfillment and stuff. Um, but it's been six years of a lot of work for me and, 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 you know, you get it, it, it feels like work, but then when you get done, you're kind of like, like, I feel like I just retired and I want to work again. And I've got all these great scripts, you know, I've got a great sci-fi series I'd like to do. I have this whole sort of reality TV show I'd like to do about the goblins and their, um, their, their history. Um, I have. Yeah, count. I mean, I you know I'm a filmmaker, so I write screenplays, and I have a, a stack of them sitting around that will probably never get made. Um, and so I'd like to do something different, but probably I'll end up doing another D and D movie because that seems to be what people want to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. How do you measure success? You know, I think as, as just be happy and just do what makes you happy. I think there are a lot of things in life that interfere with being happy. And I think it's really important to, like there was a guy, John Bradshaw on, on PBS years ago, you know, he said, follow your bliss. And it, and it was sort of corny and new age, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, follow your bliss. Cause you know, that's, that's why we're here is just to enjoy our time here and explore our own selves and explore everybody else and, and do it in a way that, that, that is pleasing to everybody, you know. Have you thought about uh, taking the film on the road, so to speak, to like game conventions and being part of panels and such and showing them in places I'd, like I'd Gen like Con to, or most, Dragon Con? You know, most game conventions can't afford to have, uh, to fly me out there and, and lodge me and, and stuff. So when I've, I've shown the movie at Gary Con, the drafts at Gary Con, um, and so... Uh, that's just comes right out of my pocket. You know, I spend a lot of money to do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, we showed it at a local bar <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, and anyway, we had a small crowd, but everybody that was there was transfixed. You know, even the people that weren't gamers just kept staring at the screen. Um, 
So there's, I, I think that's, I, I don't know, it's a good documentary. It's, it's mm-hmm. the best documentary we could make. If you consider that this documentary was made over a period of six years and that our budget is smaller than the catering budget for a big Hollywood movie, you know? Yeah. Like if, if Hollywood were to just like give us the, the budget for the catering for one of their big movies, I could make an epic movie, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wish Chris was here because he'd probably have something to say about it. I feel bad not having him part of the interview, actually, because Chris is really important, too. You know, Chris and I are buddies and um, and our, our, our sort of our motto is just that we want to do cool things. Yeah. And well, you did so, a cool uh, thing. I, I a will very attest. cool thing and a very good thing, too. Yeah. I, um, people like you are, you know, documenting the early history of this hobby before a lot of these people who are getting up there in age, you know, leave us forever. And, and I at least appreciate well, that. That's it's. And the, the thing I'd like to see is for somebody. I know that Pat Kilbane is working on a movie about Gary Gygax, and I'm very excited about is that. Is that the Dreams you know, like, in Gary's Basement movie? Is that that one? What's that? The Dreams in Gary's Basement? Is that that? Is that yeah, and I'm hoping to see that one, you know, because it's like, that's the other thing. It's like, I'm not really just, you know, it's like, I just want to know about all of it, you know, like, and it'd be, it's, I don't know, like when it's sort of like uh, the guy that went to, the, I always talk about the guy, the first man on the moon, you know, he gets back from the moon and everybody's talking about this cool thing they saw on the TV. They watched, everybody together watched the guy on the moon and, and he's like, he missed it because he was the guy on the moon, you know? And so I, I mean, not like I'm doing anything on that level, but it's like, yeah, I'd like to be able to sit down and watch a D&D documentary that I didn't make, you know? Yeah, no, I, I understand. Because I'm a gamer too, you know? Um, I don't know. I would, I just hope I, that was the thing. I wasn't really complaining about gamers today, but I wish more gamers would, would at least explore war gaming um, miniatures wargaming, it's fun. I mean, the, there's the, the 40k crowd. They definitely did it. Um, um, is it 40k? Something yeah, like Warhammer that. Mm-hmm. 40k. I was a miniatures yeah. wargamer back in the day, and I still dabble in it, and I find it to be incredibly entertaining and a lot of fun. Um, and again, yeah. it brings that whole... I, I'm a fan of history, and getting to do those recreation of battles and things, you know, really kind of fills a, a, a need... For me, so that whole miniature wargaming stuff is is still a lot of fun for me, and I, it's a I think, on my perspective, is a dying, it's dying out. Yeah, I don't think it's totally dying, but I think you're right. Um, you know what I was thinking? The one thing that was very uh, powerful about making this movie was that I got. Um, I'll read it to you. It's really nice. Um, I've never really won any awards for anything. Like I don't know, just. Somehow I'm just not the guy that gets awards. Um, um, but I got this letter, and it says, uh, Dear Sir, thank you for inviting me to attend the premiere showing of Secrets of Blackmoor, a Dungeons & Dragons documentary. Congra- congratulations for a job well done. The efforts, planning, time, and resources required were tremendous. Malia Weinhagen's, David Wesley's, and Greg Wenson's insight and input for the production added to the success of the endeavor. I was surprised and pleased to see and hear about the Hartford House, where I believe Dungeons & Dragons was conceived. The recognition of Dave Arneson, his talent and creativity is long overdue. He is indeed the father of role-playing, and has authored many articles about board games, rules, and procedures. 
Again, I thank you and appreciate the work of a multitude of people who made the documentary possible. Many thanks to all. My thanks to all. I am looking forward to viewing this masterpiece in the privacy of my own home and sharing the experience with friends. Sincerely, John Arneson. And that is a letter that I got from Dave Arneson's father. And, um, and I get a bit misty every time I read it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's really awesome. And, uh, and that might be a good way to end I our was interview. Say, I don't think we can say it better than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good way to wrap. Um, thank you for sharing that. That was sure. really pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's my that's my greatest filmmaking award in in you know decades of working with film and video. So, yeah. well, okay then, um, Griff. I want to thank you on behalf of uh, Eric sure. and I, the Grognards here, uh, for joining us. Uh, it's been very interesting, and I think that we could probably go on for two or three more hours. But oh, yeah. uh, we all, we all have lives we've got to get back to. So well, you know. Hit me up and we can argue about RPGs sometimes. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a fun evening to me. <laughs> so hopefully we'll get to meet face-to-face at uh, GaryCon this next year. Oh, yeah. It's coming so up. I'll be there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's a wrap here for this Opportunity Attack with Griffith Von Mon Morgan, the writer, director. The third. The third, the yes, third. the third. Your writer, director, narrator, and basically the brains behind the movie documentary the Secrets of Blackmore, the True History of D&D. Uh, on behalf of the Grognards, I want to say thank you, and game on. Game on.